Good morning, everybody. We are in part three of a four-part series based around the song that we just heard. It's entitled, The Greatest Commands. And I hope that you're not getting sick of the song. I mean, it's one of those things, if you ask somebody that, it would sound like a ridiculous question. If you've heard that song one time, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could hear it a thousand times and not get sick of it. But I hope that's not just me. I hope that you are uh, appreciating this, the harmony and the melody and the beauty of the words found in that song. It's simply just an amalgamation of a few key scriptures, the first of which is the first verse of the song taken from 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Love one another, for love is of God. He who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. And then there's that little tag at the end of that verse, which is also there in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, where God is love. And then from there, it goes on to the next verse, which is a taking just a snippet of 1 Corinthians 13, often called the great chapter of love. But it's really... It goes so much deeper than that, and as I've said that many times when talking about 1 Corinthians 13, this is not a chapter that defines love for us. This is a chapter that applies love for us. This is where Paul shows us what love is supposed to look like. Love is more than just telling someone, I love you. Love is not just a word. Love is a deed. Love is action. Love is service. Love is something you provide for somebody. Love is something that you, you can tangibly identify by certain qualities that it exhibits. For an example, Love bears all things. For an example, love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. You don't just take someone's word for it when they say they love you. You can see that they love you because they are bearing with you. You can tell someone loves you because they're putting up with you. You can tell someone loves you because they're giving you the benefit of the doubt. You can tell someone loves you because they see the good in you. They hope for the best in you. And you can tell someone loves you because they are going to stick with you through and through. Love is a tangible, identifiable, understandable, discernible thing. At least divine love is. As it goes back to that phrase, that tag at the end of verse 1, those, those three words that encompass the entirety of verse number 3 in the song, God is love. And we, the tenor part, we sing that part, and we sing that part, and we sing it over and over, and it becomes this refrain, it becomes this chant, it becomes this earworm that just gets in your head and hopefully never leaves, that you never forget at any point in your life, God is love. Now I can say that to you, and I can extend the invitation right now, and it'd be all right. But let's just take a minute, and let's consider what it is that that means. We sing it, and the whole reason we're doing this series, and of course our theme for the whole year, as we're just flipping through the songbook and picking out songs that we sing and examining them, the whole reason we're doing that is not just because we think, oh, these are pretty songs, here's an excuse to sing them. No, it's because we understand, as Ryan mentioned in passing as he was walking us through the Lord's Supper, the singing that we do is not just for God's edification, it's also for our instruction. It is not just to lift up God's praises, which, yes, that's part of it, but it's also to teach one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So if I'm going to sing to you those words, you need to know what they mean. You need to appreciate those words. If I'm going to tell you in song form, God is love, let's consider for a few minutes what that means. First of all, God is love. And let's not just run right by the first word in those three. God, who is love? 
God is love. And when I hear that, it raises the question in my mind. God is love, therefore I just want to know, what isn't love? If God is love, what is not love? In other words, when you tell me in song, when you try to teach me in song that God is love, I might want to know, well, what kind of love is God? What isn't the kind of love which God is? So let's take a minute. Let's examine that. God is not sensuality love. When the Bible says God is love, it's not talking about sensuality. That's not the kind of love that God is. There is a kind of love, that word, that can apply to and be defined through the, the realm of sensuality or sexuality or passion or things like that. And that is the word. The Greeks have a word, its own word for it. It's the word eros. But that's not the kind of love God is. There is a place for that that is sacred and that is pure and that is righteous. But that is still not the kind of word God uses. If you want to see that word in application form as a, as a divine principle, as a righteous thing, look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, where the writer of Hebrews says that marriage is honorable before all and the marriage bed is honorable when it is undefiled. But those who do defile it, are judged by God. That's a paraphrase, Hebrews 13, 4. Those who defile the marriage better are, are judged, right, judged with righteous judgment for their unrighteous deed. In other words, keep the marriage bed pure, keep the marriage bed undefiled, and that kind of love that is exclusive to the marriage bed, that kind of eros love, remains a pure and righteous kind of love. That's great. That's good. There's a place for that. But that's not the kind of love that we're talking about when we say God is love. God is not sensuality. And you'll find people today, twisted individuals, modern people today, who will, who will commit all kinds of ungodly sexual acts, and when challenged on a biblical basis, they will say, well, God is love. They, therefore, we should be free to express love however we want. Okay, well, you may think so, but God is not sensuality. God is not a hedonist. God is not, if it feels good, do it. No, there's a place for eros love, but God is not that. What kind of love is not God? God is not family bond love. Now again, family bond love is a good kind of love. And there is a place for the kind of love that you're supposed to have within your family unit. The kind of love a mother has for a son or a daughter, or a father has for a son or a daughter, or parents, or children to their parents, or siblings to each other, or aunt and uncle. Your extended family, that kind of blood bond love. That special kind of storge, the Greeks call it love. There is a place for that, but it is not the kind of love which God is. As a matter of fact, if you open your Bibles to Matthew 10, 34, around 34 through 37, Jesus alludes, he doesn't use the word storge, but he alludes to that kind of love in talking about the limitations of it in a spiritual sense. Because Jesus in Matthew 10, 34 says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I didn't come to make allies but enemies, which sounds like such an un-Jesus thing to say. What does he mean by that? He means when I come and I do my ministry right and I preach my message correctly, there are going to be people who stand opposed to it. And those people who side with me are going to have people in their lives, even family members in their lives, who are going to stand opposed to me and therefore to those who follow me. And Jesus says, so be it. If, if, it, if it means a father and a son and a mother and a daughter, and a, and a father and a son-in-law, and a mother and a daughter-in-law, if it means families are split apart with the people who follow me, follow me, so be it. Because I can't love God, I can't love my family more than I love God. If I do, I'm not worthy of God. 
That's what Jesus says. He that loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There is a place for that storge kind of love, that special bond that it's not actually something you're born with, but you might as well be because from second one in your life, you're born and they give you to your mother and you, you have a close contact with your mother, immediately that bond between mother and child forms starts to, in a general sense. Obviously, there's certain exceptions that things happen, but generally speaking. And they'll hand that child, again, generally speaking, to a father, and that bond begins to form. And then if they're siblings, the little child sits down and puts the baby in their lap, and a bond starts to form. And it's instantaneous. From then on, this special little core family unit starts to develop. And they form a bond that is manifested and expressed in a lot of ways. Like, have you ever said, if you're a person with siblings, I can make fun of my sister, but you can't make fun of my sister. And I can make fun of my sister, but if you laugh at me making fun of my sister, now I'm angry at you. It's a special kind of bond is what that's representing. That's storge love. There's a place for it. It's good. It's healthy. It's holy. It's righteous when it's executed properly but it cannot supersede your love for God. God is not family bond love. His love is deeper than that. It's not storge love. It's also not phileo love. The Greek word phileo describes the intensity of someone's love. Maybe you've heard this word, and maybe you've heard this word phileo love uh, misapplied, misattributed. Maybe you've heard someone say, oh, phileo love, that's brotherly love. Phileo is not brotherly love. Let's get that on record. Philadelphia is brotherly love. Phila, phileo, and adelphos, the Greek word for your brother. You put those two words together, you get Philadelphia, brotherly love. Phileo describes the intensity, the passion for someone, the amount of love you'll have for someone who is not your brother, and you'll treat them with that so much love, they might as well be your brother. It's taking someone who is not storge and treating them as though they were, but they're not. I didn't grow up with this person. I don't have this, this almost inherent bond with them. I haven't been there from diapers with this person. So I don't naturally have that kind of love for this person. No, you have to work on it. It takes a lot to love this other person as though they were your brother. And that kind of a lot is the word phileo. It is this intensity, this zeal, this fervency. I put up on the screen obsession. I say obsession, but I don't want you to get in your mind the word stalker. It's not that kind of word. It's just this, I'm, my entire thoughts are consumed. I'm getting everything I've got for this kind of love. And the best way to illustrate that kind of love in contrast to the love which God actually is, open your Bibles to John chapter 21. And let's just take a second before we go to the second point, because there's three words in the phrase, and there's three points. Let's just take a second and appreciate what kind of love God is, in this case, through what he is not. He's not phileo love. And look at this conversation, John 21, starting in verse 15 through 17, between Jesus and, Phil, and uh, Peter. And let's remember that just a few days prior to this, Peter denied the Lord three times. Not an um, unimportant amount of times. He denied the Lord three times. Then Jesus died. Then Jesus was buried and rose, and a little bit of time passed, and now it's breakfast time. The Lord has cooked breakfast for his disciples on the beach. They're having some fish. They're all gathered around the meal. And in the middle of that, Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, your Bible reads it like this, Peter, do you love me? But let's understand, the love word there is, Peter, do you agape me? 
think it's like agapeo or something like that, but it's the root agape. Peter, do you agape me? What kind of love that is, we'll get to. That's the next one. But he asked the question, Peter, do you agape me? Peter, do you agape love me? Peter's response in your Bible in the English, it's, Lord, you know that I love you. Same word, love. Do you love? You know I love. But it's a different word in the original language. It's a different word that Peter spoke. Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know I'm crazy about you. You know I think about you all the time. You know I'm obsessed with you. You know I've, I've given you everything I've got. Okay, that's great. That's good. That's not what I asked, though. So let me ask it a second time. If you keep reading, Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Agape. And the second time Peter answers, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I am crazy about you. You can read my thoughts. You can read my mind. You can read my heart. You know I am, I am giving you everything I've got. Now that's two now comes the third time, and your Bible reads, Jesus asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And your text goes on to say, and when Peter heard it the third time, when he asked him, do you love me, he grieved in his heart. Well, why? Why did he suddenly get sad when Jesus asked him? Because the third time, in the original language, Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? See, he didn't, say, he didn't ask agape this time. The third time, he took Peter's word, and he gave it back to him. Do you? Am I really on your mind all the time? Am I really just your every thought, your every engine? Because that's who Peter is. Peter is a gung-ho person. Anything he does, he goes full bore, including denying the Lord. He doesn't just do that once. He'll do that three times to make sure the point gets across, which he did a few nights earlier. While Jesus was over there in the temple area being accused by the Sadducees and the priests and the leaders, and they were asking him about his disciples, and Jesus says to them, you ask my disciples, they'll tell you who I am. Right across the way, one of his disciples was being asked, and he said to them, I don't even know that man. I don't know who he is. I swear I don't know that man. And Jesus turned and looked at him. And now we remember. And Jesus says, do you really have me on your mind all the time? Because I seem to recall a time when I wasn't, when I was as far away from your mind as I could be, when you were running away from me in your mind. Do you phileo me? And thus Peter was grieved. There must be a deeper kind of love that you have for God than just thinking about God a lot. There must be something more to your and my love for God than just whenever we do do something spiritual, we give it all that we've got. There must be something greater, something grander, something more consistent with humanity, with our every existence, than just passion. There must be more than that. God is not phileo. When John says God is love, John says God is agape. Now what is agape? I mean, we're going to examine this and more in the third point, but just to summarize, agape is sacrificial love. Agape is the love that says, I have, you don't, here, take what I have, so that I don't and you do. Agape love is, Paul saying, Second uh, Corinthians 5, 4, I think, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. He had everything, we had nothing. He, Jesus, came down to earth having nothing so that we could have everything. It wasn't so that we could split everything. It was, I'll have nothing so you could have everything. That's agape. That's what God is. God is love. Point number two. God is love. Now, I hear that. That raises the question. If God is love, is that all God is? 
What else is God? God is more than just love. God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. The vengeful God is love because the vengeful God is a consuming fire against those who don't follow him. And as every parent will tell you, punishment is an expression of love. The vengeful God is love. And if you cross God, prepare to face consuming fire. That's a scary thought. God is love. Sweet. Sounds pretty. We harmonize it so well. You don't hear the song, God is a consuming fire. We don't sing that one, but it's true. And it's an expression of his love. Understanding that principle helps me love him and keeps us in a good relationship. What else is God? God is no respecter of persons. The fair God is love. And how does he express that fairness? By not treating some groups more or worse, better or worse, than others. That's best expressed in the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. As Peter, who makes this great journey in an emotional sense, in an intellectual sense too, from the house of Simon a Tanner where he was staying, this guy who works with, with uh, dead carcasses all the time, which is not very kosher, all the way to this Gentile person's house. He has this epiphany there in the middle of that converse, uh, conversion experience, and he says, you know what I've just realized? That God is fair, and that it is not fair for me to exclude a non-Jew from hearing the gospel, despite the fact the Messiah was a Jew, and that the message first was preached to Jews, and that he was resurrected in Jerusalem, and the church began in this, the capital of the Jews. None of that matters, because God simply started the church there, and it has branched out to now encompass the half-Jews and now the non-Jews. God is fair, and if anyone comes to God Anyone can be saved by God. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you came from, what your skin color is, what your nation is, what your language is, what your culture is, what your economic status is. God is fair, and all will be judged, and all will be made righteous who come to him. God is love. The fair God is. The possessive God is love because God is jealous. The text on the screen is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. We referenced a minute ago Hebrews 12, 29. That was actually the writer quoting from Deuteronomy 4. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses says, God is a jealous God and God is a consuming fire. That's the same context. God is a jealous God. And it is good and it is right that God is a jealous God. God is possessive. Let's understand the difference between jealousy and envy. Envy is, you have something I want and I hate you for it and I will do anything to get it. That's envy. That's bad. Jealousy is, I have something I don't want you to have. Okay, I'm not allowed to be jealous. The things I have don't belong to me. They belong to God. He gave them to me. He's the blesser, and I'm the recipient, so I should be willing to share, to impart, to give, and not be possessive. But God is possessive, because I belong to him, and he doesn't want to share me. He didn't send Jesus all the way to the cross and back just for the devil to claim me as his own. I used to belong to the devil. Jesus bought me. Jesus owns me. I am his now. He is possessive of me. And if I try to pry myself away from his possessive grasp, then consuming fire kicks in. But let's appreciate the love of God is such that he is possessive. He wants you in his grasp. That's what God is. What else is God? Two more. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. The unifying God is that if you remember the context of the verse 1 Corinthians 14 
The Corinthian church was mired in division and divisiveness as, a, as a, almost a culture there. They were completely broken apart into factions and groups for a thousand different reasons, one of which was these groups had these miraculous gifts and these groups had these miraculous gifts. They were fighting over whose gift was better. Petty, ridiculous, foolish stuff like that to the point where the people who could speak in other languages weren't getting along with the interpreters of the languages and so they weren't interpreting. So a bunch of people were speaking a bunch of different languages and if you're just a visitor who walks in on Sunday and everybody's speaking all these different languages, you would probably just close the doors and go somewhere else to worship. It's just this chaotic scene, this mess of hysteria and, and, and madness. And Paul says, this is not the way it is supposed to be. God is not the creator of a confused environment. God desires peace, unity, harmony between his people. Because that's an expression of love. When we all get along, the unifying God is love. He doesn't want us to be fighting with each other. Where is confusion? But rather unified, wherein is peace. Last one on this point. God is faithful. The reliable God will always be there for you. The reliable God will always be present. If you look for him, you will find him. Those three words, God is faithful, it's found in 1 Corinthians 1.9. It's found in a few other places too. And I always point this one out. This is one of the ones I go to when people say, well, God is love. That's all God is. God is love. No, God is not just love, just as you think of the word. His love is expressed in multiple things that God is, one of which is God is faithful. Your Bible says it over and over. God is not just how the world defines love, a being who just has warm wishes for you. Because warm wishes don't get me warm at night. Warm wishes don't help me when I'm stranded and need divine assistance. Warm wishes don't save my soul. I need a God to express himself, to do something, to be reliable. When he says, if you do this, I will save you. I do it. I can know I'll be saved. Not just because, well, God has you know, a warm, mushy feeling in his divine belly, but because he always keeps his word. And I don't, because I said that was the last one. This is the last one. God is light. God is light. This is from 1 John as well. 1 John 2, uh, 1 verse 5. Light in that context is purification. The purifying God. Because if you're in the light of God, your sins are always cleansed. If you are in the light of Christ, your sins will always be cleansed. Once you are in the light, you will always be saved. But if you get out of the light, you will always be condemned. Now that's Bible. It's so close to the way it's falsely taught. But this is not horseshoes. You have to be truthful. And the Bible says as long as you are in the light, you will always be saved. And as long as you are not in the light, you will never be saved. Because in the light is purification. In the light, it's cleansing, and that's where God's love is found, expressed through the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood, which washes away your sins, 1 John 1, 7. God is love. God is, last one, then we're done, love. What kind of love is God? What is agape love? What does that look like? We said at the beginning of the sermon, this kind of love is something that is tangible, identifiable, discernible, describable, visible, doable. Well, what does that mean from a divine standpoint? God is sacrificial love. We've danced around it enough. Let's open our Bibles back to 1 John 4. And let's read three verses as we close. Look at 1 John 4, starting in verse 9. Listen to what the writer says. And as you read this, I want you to keep in your mind what we write on the screen. Sacrificial love, okay? 
First of all, what God does for us. 1 John 4, 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Now, he's going to tell you exactly how that is done in the next verse, but that's for a different word. I just want you to think about it because you already know it. What did God do so that you might live through Christ? What did Christ do so that you might live through him? Christ did not just come here to live and just to live and just to live. Christ came here to live so that he might die because you can't kill the Father. You can't kill God, but you can kill a man. And a man's death was necessary to atone for the sins of a man, me, person. So God became flesh so that he might die as flesh dies. So that willingness to give of himself, God, the, the triune essence of God, to give of himself, to become not just God, but a God-man for the express purpose of dying. That's the greatest example of sacrificial love there is. He had it all, and he left it all so that we could have it all, as we read from 2 Corinthians. That's sacrificial love. That's what agape love looks like. I have it all, you don't, here's what I have. What kind of love is it? It is a serving kind of love. Now look at the next verse. Verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, a sin offering for our sins. In verse 9, put the focus on the father. He is giving, himself, giving of himself in the form of the son. He is giving the son, his sacrifice for us. Now put the focus in verse 10 on the son himself. What did Jesus personally do? He was willing to go through with it. Because God, as an essence in heaven, in eternity, in eternity, saying, I'm going to give of myself in the form of the Son, Jesus Christ, to die. That was the plan. Okay. But the moment Jesus is born, he's a man. God man, sure. But a man. And a man has free will. A man can choose. A human being can decide, I don't know if I want to go through with this. But that wasn't Jesus. The closest you came was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where in that garden, all he did was say, God, do I have to? If there is some other way. And when the father said, there's no other way, up he went and arrested he was. He still, even then, still could have called those 12 legions of angels as he mentioned. He still could have walked away. But he chose to serve. He chose to obey for your benefit. That's agape love. I will serve. I will put someone else's needs above my own. I don't have to. I'm commanded to, but I don't have to obey. I'll be punished if I don't, but I have the free will choice not to do so. But I'm going to choose not to use that free will. I'm going to choose to obey. That's agape love. It's sacrificial. It's serving. Look at verse 16 and see how it is selfless. Go to our reading one more time. Verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love. And he that dwells in love, I think Kate said lives in love, same idea dwells in God and God in him start with the father in verse 9 he sacrificed his son you go to the son in verse 10 he served the father now we take that and we make application to self he loved me I live in him so I must love as he loves my emphasis on me your emphasis on you what do we do we take away ourselves and we do for others it's no longer about us anymore what does the text say again in verse 16 we have known and believed the love that God has to us. This is the inciting incident that motivates our action. God is love. And we, by dwelling in love, dwell in God. But we've already seen through this sermon, through this whole series, what that looks like. That sacrificial nature, that serving nature, that others before self nature. 
And I have to put myself in the shoes of God who was willing to give his only begotten son. And I have to love like that. In the shoes of Christ who is willing to die the horrible death for others. And I have to be willing to love like that. Why? Why do I have to do that? Because I am the recipient of that love. And it ain't free. It requires something of me. Doing as he did. Getting his shoes. Dwelling in that love. And loving like he loved. That's, I started this, the series a few weeks ago with this idea. I'm going to remind you of it again before we close. You sing this song and you're amazed by the love of God and you're blown away by how much God loves you. Yes, fine, good. The song is not about that. The song is about motivating you to love. When you read 1 John 4, you read about how Christ came to be the sin offering for us and you're blown away by his willingness to love us and you think, well, how could you ever top that? Well, I guess you can't, but your mission is to try your mission is to live as best as you can up to that standard because that's what Jesus says in John 15. Love one another as I have loved you. Well, how much did you love me, Jesus? Enough to die on the cross. Now you go love. You don't get to sit back and say, boy, I'm sure glad I'm loved that much. No, there's no couch. You gotta get up and walk. You gotta get up and work. You have to get up and love because you dwell in it. So go do it. That's agape love. God is that kind of love. And if you're a child of God, that's you too. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, I don't want to scare you off and make it sound like, boy, if I sign up for this, look at all that's expected of me. Well, okay, fine. You're expected to love, but consider the alternative. As we've already said, God is a consuming fire. Now you can, you can not have that, and you can just be a loving person. To me, that sounds like a good trade. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a faithful child of God, become one. It is as simple as giving your life to Christ, submitting to him who gave his life for you. Giving over your life, putting your sins to death, burying them in a watery grave, and rising to walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6. And then when you come up out of the water, you'll be embraced by a spiritual family that will love you and encourage you and help you on the way to stay in the light wherein is salvation to find others who are out of it, to bring them in it too, because that's what love is. We have one more sermon in this series. We'll end it next week, how we should love God with everything we've got. But if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, consider the love that Jesus had for you and obey the gospel. And if we can help you do that or anything else, let us know how right now as we stand and sing.